0: A husband of 25 years went to the mall to buy his wife a gift for Valentine's Day. He entered the large department store, went directly to the women's fragrance section, said to the college-age clerk, I want to purchase the most popular perfume on the market today. She knew exactly what he was talking about. She left momentarily, only to return with a bottle of perfume. She sprayed it on a card, gave that card to the gentleman so he could wave it under his nose oh the sweet aroma was pleasantly intoxicating he thought to himself that's it that's exactly what my wife would want he was about to make the purchase when he asked the question how much does it cost 275 dollars she replied all of a sudden that sweet aroma became a foul stench in his nostrils He thought to himself, $275, are you kidding me? I know it's been a long time since I purchased a fragrance for my wife, but this is ridiculous. He composed himself and then said to the college-age clerk, do you have anything a little less expensive? She said, oh, yes. She turned around, went around the corner, came back with a smaller bottle of that same perfume. How much is that? He inquired. She said, well, you're in luck because today that's on sale for $150. Once again, he thought to himself, $150, I've got a pocket knife that's bigger than that size of a bottle of perfume. $150 for that? He was beginning to get a little frustrated. He said to the clerk, ma'am, I am just looking for something that's a little bit cheaper. Do you have anything that fits that description? Apparently, she too was becoming a bit frustrated. So she just reached under the counter, pulled out a hand-sized mirror, held it in front of the man's face and said, sir, if you look in here, I'll think you'll find something pretty cheap. (laughs) And before you ask, no, this is not a story from personal experience. (laughs) But all of a sudden it hit the man like a ton of bricks he thought to himself something has drastically happened to the love that I demonstrate to my spouse but there was a day and time when he would have bought her anything regardless the price there was a time when he would have purchased anything and he just would have made it work it's not that he didn't want to buy his wife a gift He just didn't want to make it cost so much. It's not that he didn't love his wife. No, he loved his wife. Loved her with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the way that he demonstrated that love, it had grown different over the years. Apparently, what once would have been regarded as an acceptable gift was now seen as an extravagant waste. Over the years, he had become more economical than excessive, more pragmatic than passionate, more sensible than sacrificial. Something had happened to the love that he demonstrated to his spouse. And I wonder this morning, if that can happen to a a husband as he regards his wife, I, I wonder, is it possible that over the years... Something can happen to the love that you have for the Lord, that what you once would have regarded as something very acceptable to give unto him, now you just see it as something that is far too extravagant. It's with that in mind that I invite you to take a Bible and turn to the gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence. To the public reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 14. I'll begin at verse 1. I'll conclude at verse 11. Now, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. They rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this. They promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Mark does a masterful job at portraying the brilliance of the extravagant devotion that this anonymous woman had for Jesus. In literary fashion what he does is he places a rose between two thorns. He lifts the diamond right from the midst of the rough. The story of this great devotion is found in verses 3 to 9. That story is bracketed by two examples of individuals who are thoroughly disgusted with Jesus. In verses 1 to 2, it's the, it's the chief priest and the teachers of the law. In verses 10 and 11, it's that one named Judas Iscariot. Those two stories of those that are thoroughly disgusted with Jesus that develop a a diabolical plot in order to betray him and to ultimately kill him. In the midst of all that rises this beautiful story of extravagant love and devotion. Literally, literally, it is a rose between two thorns. It is a diamond lifted up against a diabolical backdrop. Mark begins by saying that it was only two days from Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover was that meal commemorating the great Exodus event whereby God had liberated the Israelites from their Egyptian captivity. Every year, Jews would gather in Jerusalem for Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's the seven-day party that followed the meal. It's the seven-day celebration. And of all the festivals, this was the one that was the best attended in Israel's history. Jerusalem in those days had a population that was well under 50,000 individuals, yet During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that population would swell to more than a quarter of a million individuals living in and around the vicinity of the holy city of Jerusalem. The chief priests, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they were plotting a plan to kill Jesus. Mark says they were looking for a sly way, a, a sinister trap. In order to entice Jesus because they wanted to get him off the scene. Now this is nothing new. It had been going on as early as Mark chapter 3 verse 6. In that verse we read that the Pharisees and the Herodians were plotting on how they might get rid of Jesus. What is so remarkable about that statement is that the Herodians and the Pharisees could not agree on anything. Yet they could agree on public enemy number one. They needed Jesus, that redneck, rebel-rousing troublemaker from Galilee, to get off the scene. He was starting a revolution, and so they wanted to get rid of him. Here in our passage, we find that the scribes, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, they are looking for a sly way, but they're thinking to themselves, we can't do this during Passover. Why? Because a riot will be on our hands. So then you get to the end of the passage, and you see the pawn in their plot. It's a brilliant idea. It's one of his own. It's an inside job. Judas Iscariot volunteers to be the scapegoat. He volunteers to hand over Jesus. And he, he's willing to hand over the savior for only 30 pieces of silver. This is a brilliant, foolproof plan. This is a diabolical scheme. In the, in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this, uh, underhanded, backstabbing type of of an event it is mark who plants this beautiful story of devotion and extravagant love jesus from the city of bethany the village of bethany was located 2 miles east of the capital holy city of jerusalem it wasn't uncommon for jesus to stay in bethany whenever he went to jerusalem many times he would stay with some of his best friends Lazarus Martha and Mary those three siblings were dear to Jesus Jesus was dear to them what's so impressive is that in all four of the gospels every gospel writer has a perfume pouring alabaster jar breaking story Matthew Mark Luke and John they all have one and I want to contend this morning that Matthew Mark and John are describing one and the same event and Luke describes a totally different event the reason I say that is probably threefold number one it's the placement of the story in Matthew Mark and John it happens towards the end of the ministry of Jesus in Luke's version of that perfume pouring alabaster jar breaking story it happens towards the beginning of the ministry of Jesus I think it's two different events I also think it's different because the women are identified in different ways In Matthew and Mark and John, this anonymous woman comes to anoint the head and body of Jesus. Now Mark leaves her anonymous. John gives us her name. Her name is Mary. Not just any Mary, but John is very specific that it's Mary who's the sibling of Lazarus and Martha. In John's version, Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus and the disciples. Martha is doing what? She's working in the kitchen. And Mary is there. And what does Mary do? She gets up and she anoints the body of Christ. I think that that Matthew and Mark and John are describing the very same event. I think it's Mary, that precious dear sister who stands up to anoint the body to do something of extravagant love unto Christ. In Luke's version of the story, it's a totally different woman. It's not even Mary at all. In fact, in Luke's version of the story, Her name is not identified, but her preoccupation is identified. She is a woman of the night. She is a a woman who lived a sinful life in that city. She comes to the party unannounced and uninvited. She's not on the guest list, yet she barges and crashes in on the party. It's a totally different scenario. And she comes and she anoints the, the feet of Jesus with her tears. And then ultimately she breaks the alabaster jar and pours all the perfume on the feet of Christ. I think there's another reason of why these are two different stories. And it's because of, of the, the home in which Jesus is residing. In Luke's version, his name is Simon the Pharisee. In Matthew, Mark, and John, it's Simon the leper. Matthew and Mark identify him, Simon the leper. John doesn't even tell us the location but one who has leprosy is far different than one who is a Pharisee. And I think that these are two different stories, two different locations, two different women. Yet it's interesting in our version that, that the one who owns the house is identified as Simon the leper. I promise you, he doesn't still have leprosy. If he still had leprosy, he would not be in the house. He would be on the outskirts of town. Probably this man had been healed of his leprosy. Probably by Jesus. And out of gratitude, he opened his home and invited Jesus and the boys to come for dinner. And he also, because he's there in Bethany, he probably also knows Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and so he invited them as well to come over to his house. He's known as Simon the leper. Even though he doesn't have leprosy now, he's still known by his condition of the past. When I stop and think about that, it's it's interesting and, and almost alarming that he's acknowledged by his infirmity of his past. Simon. Simon who? Oh, you know, Simon the leper. Oh, yeah. I know who that guy is. Identified by his infirmity of the past. And then it hit me. We still do that today, don't we? We identify individuals by their physical infirmities. You know, Tom. Tom. Tom, what Tom are you talking about? To? Uh, Tom who has cancer. Oh, yeah, I know Tom with cancer. Vicki, you know, Vicky who has the brain tumor. Sally, you know, Sally's the one who has the daughter with Down syndrome. Oh, yeah, I know who Sally is. We recognize people by their infirmity. Not just a physical infirmity, but also a spiritual infirmity. Uh, you know Derek, don't you? Now, which Derek you talking about? I'm talking about Derek the adulterer. Derek, the one who cheated on his wife just a couple of months ago. Oh, yeah, I know that, Derek. You know Mildred, don't you? Mildred the gossip? I mean, you can't tell that woman anything. If it goes in her ear, it's going to come out of her mouth, right? I mean, Mildred the gossip. Oh, yeah, I know Mildred the gossip. Then you got Jessica. Which Jessica are you talking about? I'm talking about Jessica, the one addicted to meth. Oh, yeah, Jessica, the drug addict. Yes, I I know exactly who you're talking about. Friends, even today, we still identify people, even by their past infirmities, whether it's physical or spiritual. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad today that God does not identify me with my infirmities. God does not label me and regard me and identify me with my sickness, my sin, or my setbacks. Because he took my infirmity. He carried my sorrow. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Horatio Spafford is exactly right. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. I don't know about you today, but I'm glad that Jesus doesn't identify me with my infirmity, whether it's physical or spiritual. I'm glad that in Christ I'm a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. They're in the home of Simon the leper. And all of a sudden, uh, Mark labels her as an anonymous woman. I think it's Mary, the sibling of Lazarus and Martha. And Mary comes and she breaks an alabaster jar of perfume. She pours all of its contents on the head of Jesus. That sweet aroma fills the house. The perfume begins to cascade down his face into his beard, soaks his beard against his chest, saturates his garments, flows all the way down to his feet. This aroma is overwhelming. You've all bumped into people who put on too much cologne, right? I mean, it is breathtaking. You know, this is an extravagant gift because it's in an alabaster jar. It was Pliny the Elder who wrote, only the most precious of ointment is preserved in alabaster. You know, it's very costly the disciples began to rebuke her harshly. Why this waste? This could have been sold for a year's worth of wages, the money given to the poor. Literally, the text reads, this could have been sold for 300 denarii. A denarius was an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. So it is a year's worth of wages. Probably it's an heirloom that's been passed down from one generation to the next. It's made of pure nard. Nard was an expensive extract that was imported from india it's an yes. ointment perfume in an alabaster jar made of pure nard it's worth a years of wages and those that were there the disciples it is john who identifies that the ringleader of this criticism is judas iscariot he's upset why because he holds the money bag and oftentimes his hand was in the purse But Judas is upset and everybody else is upset. Why this waste? Too extravagant. This is too wasteful. They're not upset that she's anointing the body of Jesus. They're upset that she's done it in such an extravagant way. It's a waste. This could have been better used. The money could have been used to help the poor. Everybody knows that on the night of Passover, the Israelites are supposed to give to the poor and help the poor. On this night of all nights, it could have been taken and used to give to the poor. They rebuked her harshly. And Jesus comes to her defense. Aren't you glad when Jesus does that? Jesus comes to her defense. And what does he say? Leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. Listen, you always have the poor, but you won't always have me here. She is, has anointed my body for Burial. By this, Jesus communicating the manner and mode of death which he will experience in only a few days. For he knows he's going to die a criminal's death. He knows he he will die on the cross. And only those who die a criminal's death, that body is not prepared beforehand for burial. What she has done will be proclaimed whenever the gospel is preached. Guys, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing. That's the story. It's a beautiful story. It's a glorious story. It's an extravagant story of love and devotion for Christ. This morning, I want you to quickly walk away with two takeaways. The first one is this. Jesus accepts extravagant devotion. He never tells her to stop, does he? He never says, no, 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 that's too much. No, don't do that. No. He never says that. So I take that to mean that you and I cannot make too much of Jesus. We can't think about him too much. We can't speak of him too much. We can't worship him too much. We can't serve him too much. We can't love him too much. We can't preach about him too much. We can't give to him too much. We can't surrender unto him too much. In fact, it's been my observation and experience that the more I give to Jesus, the more he wants from me. So we cannot give too much to Jesus. He never says of our gift, no, no, that's too much. That's too extravagant. I'm not worthy of that. No, he's worthy of all of our extravagance. We cannot outgive him. We can't do too much for him. So the question is, what should your level of extravagant love be for the Lord? Only you can answer that. I don't know what your extravagant level of devotion is to Christ. Maybe It's teaching a Sunday school class. Maybe it's volunteering in the nursery. Maybe it's working with our students. Maybe it's going on a mission trip. Maybe it's giving 20% instead of 12% to the work of the Lord. Maybe it's having that gospel conversation with that family member who doesn't want to talk about religion. Maybe it's going door to door in your neighborhood and just being bold about Christ. I don't know. What is your level of extravagance? But regardless of whatever it is, I promise you this, Jesus will accept it because he deserves and he accepts extravagant, extravagant devotion. Second takeaway, Jesus regards brokenness as beautiful. He's not saying that the alabaster jar was beautiful. It wasn't beautiful until it was broken. What do we do with broken things? Broken things are a mess. We got to clean it up, right? Broken things are a mess. Yet Jesus says that brokenness is beautiful. She's done a beautiful thing for me, guys. She has taken something that was very special to her, probably an heirloom that had been handed down from generation to generation. She took it and she sacrificed it unto the Lord. She broke it. They didn't have duct tape. They couldn't put it back together again. It was broken for now and forevermore. Broken. And Jesus said that is beautiful. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you were broken over your mess? When was the last time you were broken over your sin? When was the last time you were broken over the lostness that's around us? When was the last time you were broken over the things that break the very heart of God? Most of us would say, I'm broken over my sin. I hate my sin. And yet we return to our sin. Oh, I despise my sin. Yet we cling to our sin. I wonder I wonder if we're truly broken or if we're like the proverb writer who simply says, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. That's gross, but that's reality. That's how we are with our sin, As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. We say we hate it, yet we cling to it. When you think about that proverb, there is something that is that is instinctive about it. As a dog returns to vomit, it's instinctive for a sinner to return to sin. But it's fruitless, isn't it? It's foolishness. And Jesus is asking us the question, when was the last time you were broken? You, you regard yourself, as just a mess. Yet Jesus says, whatever you give unto me, whatever you sacrifice unto me, that mess is not a mess for brokenness is beautiful. So guys, what she has done is a beautiful thing. She's poured it all out. She's given it all unto me. This morning, you and I come to the Lord's table. And on this day, we come to An example of extravagant love. The extravagant love that God displayed for you and for me. That though we were sinners, God sent his one only son, Jesus Christ, down on the cross for your sins and for mine. And he took the punishment that we deserve. He took the whipping that we should have experienced. He took eternal condemnation upon himself for you and for me. That's extravagant love that God has for us. And on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead to give us eternal life. And so we come today, and we come and we like to keep our alabaster jars clean and whole and perfect. Friends, we're a mess. Let's just go ahead and break it, whatever the it may be, just break it and pour it at the feet of Christ and say, all to Jesus I surrender and all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him, and in his presence I'll daily live, so I surrender it all, all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender it all. And Jesus will say, that brokenness is beautiful unto me. His body was broken, his blood was shed, so that you and I, who are a mess, could be declared a masterpiece in the presence of God. If you're a baptized believer in Christ, then you, my friend, are invited to come to his table and partake.